This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. As part of my contribution to the Sealy Challenge, I have as my guest today poet and scholar Chantelle Lavoie, who's speaking about writer and poet Margaret Atwood. Chantelle Lavoie, originally from Saskatchewan, now lives in Kingston, Ontario. The city of Kingston acknowledges that they are on the traditional homeland of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. In Kingston, she's an associate professor in the Department of English, Culture and Communications at the Royal Military College of Canada. She's published two books of poetry, Where the Terror Lies, with Quattro Books in 2012, and This is About Angels, Women and Men in 2021 with Mansfield Press. She also won the Books in Canada Poetry Award and was shortlisted for the Mitchell Faith in Writing Poetry Award in 2019. Now, I've known Chantel since she won the Books in Canada Poetry Award. In fact, I've had one of the lines from one of the poems that won, called Movies, committed to memory. To this day, this is the passage. The shadows of knives, kisses, nooses, tendrils of hair and crosses have come to mean more, are more desired and feared than the real things. A trick of cinematography, or say, history. It was the latter two lines that I had committed to memory. Not surprisingly, recently Chantel also had some lines from her poetry posted to a billboard. I am not kidding. I'll be circulating the image on social media. The line is, Blossoms long for the roots of the tree distant, still part of the same life. Here's my discussion with Chantel Lavoie about Margaret Atwood. So hi, Chantelle. Welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Hello. I hoped that you could begin by telling us about your fascination with Atwood. What does Atwood's poetry do for you? I guess my fascination now when I'm 51 is different from the fascination when I was 17, although that's the wonderful thing about Atwood is that she has been around and writing poetry for all of that time, and it has changed, but the strong parts have stayed and endured. So I often think these days about her 2002 book of essays, Negotiating with the Dead, a writer on writing, and that came out of her Cambridge University Epsom Lecture series. And at one point, apropos the title, she states there, all writing of the narrative kind, and perhaps all writing, is motivated deep down by a fear of and a fascination with mortality, Hmm. by a desire to make the risky trip to the underworld and to bring something or someone back from the dead. And I don't think that could leave any of us untouched, right? It really... That's a great quotation. it's, It's remarkable. And I think it's very true in her lyrical work, that is her poetry, Um, And although she said in a 2003 interview with Christine Evan and and Rina Kanpur that, quote, poetry opens the door, novels are corridors, and that was in 2003, she said that, 
And her novels are both many and acclaimed. And I do love her novels and the genre of the novel Mm -hmm. in general. I think it's really her poetry that will endure and that is most powerful. And she comes out with a new collection about every 10 years and I wait for it. And it's just (laughs) amazing when it comes out. Do you, do you think that that's a common perception that, that she's weightier as a poet than as a novelist? That is a really great question. I know others who, who do feel this way. And I will freely admit that I have not read every single one of her novels, that some of the ones lately um, uh, have passed me by, or else I'll mm-hmm. go back later and I'll catch up with them. Whereas mm-hmm. I think there are quite a few of us who wait for that poetry to come. And when it comes, it's like that, you know, that box of chocolates or something on Christmas morning. It's just so, so rich. Um, Not that the novels don't inform the poetry. And I think that's what anyone who really likes Atwood gets to see is the way that the things she's been working through and on Mm -hmm. that come out in the novels then get distilled into these perfect poems. Mm -hmm. Right. I think I think you get the same kind of concerns in both. But there is something that's really very powerful in her in her poetry. And she's published 15 books of verse. So three of those are selected poetry collections. And as I mentioned before, most of them come about a decade apart. And her latest book of verses is Dearly, which came out in 2020. Tell me what you think some of your favorites are. So you've cited that she's she's published about 15 books of verse. Mm-hmm. So of those 15, what are your some of your favorites? Well, I, I loved dearly so much. I got it for, for Christmas because it was on my wish list, like all of her books of poetry have been as soon as I know that another one is is coming. The two before that I have I found really, really powerful. So there's Morning in the Burned House, which is just beautiful and beautiful in the painful Atwood way. Like <laughs> you're not always gonna feel good, <laughs> but you'll feel something, right? Um, maybe you'll feel under understood, maybe. Um, and Morning in the Burnt House came out in 1995. One of the things I found interesting about that is that, came, again, came out not long after she'd been working on uh, Cat's Eye and the Robber Bride. Yes, I remember. Right? So that came after, those came after Interlunar. And some of the things that you see coming through in Morning in the Burned House, you go, ah, I, I know where this came from, and this is how it's turned into a poem now. Um, so, so just to give an example of that is, is one of the very memorable female characters in The Robber Bride, for those who know that, is, is Tony, and she's a military historian. And there's a poem in Morning in the Burned House called The Loneliness of the Mil- Military Historian, which is about a woman who's a military historian. And I guess I find this especially interesting because I teach at mm-hmm. the Royal Military College. And there was a day some years back when I was walking down the history department corridor and I saw this poem up on the wall. Someone had printed it and put it on a corkboard no way. in the history department. And I thought, aha, Atwood, Inter- interesting. So maybe I could just read the beginning of, of that poem, for example, to show what I'm, sure. what I'm talking about. So the loneliness of the military historian begins like this. Confess, it's my profession that alarms you. This is why few people ask me to dinner. The Lord knows I don't go out of my way to be scary. 
I wear dresses of sensible cut and unalarming shades of beige. I smell of lavender and go to the hairdressers. That's great. That's a great passage. Yeah. And, you know, it goes from there. And this passage, I think, shows two of Atwood's strengths. And one is her command of internal rhyme and lyricism Mm -hmm. that, right, so confess, it's my profession, dresses of sensible cut, right? There's so much beauty Mm -hmm. there. And at the same time, the second strength is her sense of humor. Oh, yes. I, I, uh, yes, right? I completely agree. She, she has such a wry, dry wit. And so here she is poking fun at the tropes of femininity and their limitations. And yet the poem also makes really powerful statements about violence and war and, and human history. Right, mm-hmm. And she can do, do so much in so little space. It's pithy. She's, she's yeah. a very pithy writer. And she can do that in in anything, and she does that in her in her novels too. But I think right the the power of it really comes through in the in the poetry, like like that one. So this was in uh, "Morning in the Burned House." This particular poem, right? Are there other poems in that particular anthology that strike you that would allow us to understand your particular fascination with Atwood or? Yes. Well, and going back to that first quotation I, I read about negotiating with the dead, it's um, there's some very strong pieces near the end here, too. And they have to do especially with this series of poems grieving the fact of the speaker's father losing his memory, deteriorating, and thus going wherever it is we go. Um, and again, there's that idea of the door, mm-hmm. right? Um so one of these, and, and there are plenty of them too, one of these is called Bored. And again, it's near the end of Morning in the Burnt House. Now, again, I think anyone who has has lost and gone through any sort of process in losing a parent oh, yes. and recollects not having appreciated enough, mm. which is everyone, <laughs> I think, Always. Or, or, or understanding quite what was going on at the time when one was younger, comes through very forcefully here. So if I, I shall read that one too, if I may. Oh, you may. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, with that one, you know, single word title, bored. All those times I was bored out of my mind, holding the log while he sawed it, holding the string while he measured, boards, distances between things, or pounded stakes into the ground for rows and rows of lettuces and beets, which I then, bored, weeded. Or sat in the back of the car, or sat still in boats, sat, sat, while at the prow, stern, wheel, he drove, steered, paddled. It wasn't even boredom, it was looking, looking hard and up close at the small details, myopia, the worn gunwales, the intricate twill of the seat cover, the acid crumbs of loam, the granular pink rock, its igneous veins, the sea fans of dry moss, the blackish and then the graying bristles on the back of his neck. Sometimes he would whistle, sometimes I would. The boring rhythm of doing things over and over, carrying the wood, drying the dishes, such minutiae. It's what the animals spend most of their time at, ferrying the sand grain by grain from their tunnels, shuffling the leaves in their burrows, 
He pointed such things out, and I would look at the world texture of his square finger, earth under the nail. Why do I remember it as sunnier all the time then, though it more often rained, and more birdsong? I could hardly wait to get the hell out of there to anywhere else. Perhaps, though, boredom is happier. It is for dogs or groundhogs. Now I wouldn't be bored. Now I would know too much. Now I would know. Oh. <sighs> what I would give just to be bored with my father again, let me tell you. Right? It's just that remarkable. And and what she does with time, right? So the, the back and forth and the, the child sort of wanting to be anywhere else and we've I think all felt that at different times and it really just hits hits you where you live I think and the short lines right now I would know too much now I would know right that the the shortening that actually contains worlds in those few in those few that words. counterbalances those loping lines that precede that kind of the beauty, the beauty of that boredom, right? It's All the a, details, it, right? And, and noticing mm -hmm. things, but not necessarily appreciating them. And at the same time, it's saddening, but it also makes you feel, well, it wasn't me alone, right? We all feel this way. This is the human condition. This is the child's relationship. Even in a happy relationship, this is what we want is to get away and then we can't get back. Yeah. So it's hard, but it's, I don't know, it's less lonely, I guess, than thinking what a fool I was. Well, what fools we are. <laughs> right? All of us at one so, point or another, oh, what fools we are. Yeah. So thank you for listening to that. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite, but, it, uh, but hard, very hard. But as you know, I've talked about this in other episodes um, in which I talk about the loss of my parents. And so those moments that, that Atwood characterizes are moments I precisely relate to working in the garden mm -hmm. where I remember it feeling hot and sticky and there were bugs biting in my, <laughs> my, my arms and I, I didn't want it really necessarily be there. I wish I could go back to that moment, even in that discomfort and be with him. It captures that beautifully. Mm -hmm. It does. And I think that too is why this, this, image of the door is so evocative in her work. Sometimes it's overt and sometimes it's not, but right, there's this door and we all go through it and we don't know what's in the darkness and it might just be darkness on the other side. But once we're at that, we're looking in that direction, everything at our backs is the past. Mm. And she's so aware of that and the, the ways that she evokes that, with the poem as a door, yeah, yeah, I think really is a is a lesson in what what we can do with with poetry. So, and it's interesting because her next collection after that, and so that was "Morning in the Burnt House," is called "The Door." Uh -huh. <laughs> Hence, and this is another favorite collection of of yours. Yes, yeah. So it's the penultimate one because after this came has come dearly, um, and. That I had to get another copy out of the library because I gave my copy away and I found that out before we were talking and I was so upset because I can't remember where where it's gone. But luckily the the Kingston Library had it and I will be buying another one because I'm happy to 
to do that. But I really, yes, wanted, since I was thinking we could talk about doors, to have the door for our talk. Uh, this is like a, a shout out to libraries. I'm glad that we have them and that we can go and borrow whenever we can in this way. It's nice that we have our own personal libraries, but not everyone can have them. So shout out to your, your library. Right. And their poetry sections, which are small, right? Although Kingston's pretty, pretty good. Kingston does have a lot of its own poets. So they, I think that helps our poetry sections in our, in our libraries. And I was very happy to find out that this one was there. Um, and I, and I won't say too much about this one because I'd sure. like us if we could to move on to dearly, but I thought, well, it would be great to read the last poem yes, in the door, which is the title poem. The door swings open. You look in. It's dark in there, most likely spiders, nothing you want. You feel scared. The door swings closed. The full moon shines. It's full of delicious juice. You buy a purse. The dance is nice. The door opens and swings closed so quickly you don't notice. The sun comes out. You have swift breakfasts with your husband, who is still thin. You wash the dishes. You love your children. You read a book. You go to the movies. It rains moderately. The door swings open. You look in. Why does this keep happening now? Is there a secret? The door swings closed. The snow falls. You clear the walk while breathing heavily. It's not as easy as once. Your children telephone sometimes. The roof needs fixing. You keep yourself busy. The spring arrives. The door swings open. It's dark in there with many steps going down. But what is that shining? Is it water? The door swings closed. The dog has died. This happened before. You got another. Not this time, though. Where is your husband? You gave up the garden. It became too much. At night, there are blankets. Nonetheless, you are wakeful. The door swings open. O oh, God of hinges, God of long voyages, you have kept faith. It's dark in there. You confide yourself to the darkness. You step in. The door swings closed. You see what I mean about doors? <laughs> I may not be looking at my doors in the same way for a while. <laughs> and that would. <laughs> and the time she covers there, right? Like she's just got this gift. Also remarkable there and in a lot of her work is that use of the second person, mm -hmm. what she does with you, because you is I, but it's not just I. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it really implicates the reader in a way that not everyone is successful using the you that way. It's a hard technique yeah. that that point of view, I find very few writers are, are able to successfully use it. The one that comes to mind is um, Diane Schumperlin's red plaid shirt. Ah. She uses the second person point of view to kind of right. capture a much larger sense. It's what you were saying earlier. She captures this larger sense of who's impl implicated or involved in the narrative that's being told. Yes. So um, so you have this, the, the third collection you also wanted to talk about dearly, the most recent one. Which is really beautiful. I mean, they're all, they're all lovely, but it's very, very beautiful. And it's such a beautiful word, 
dearly. Mm. Just having that as the title, all those associations come up, right? And and one of them, I think, for almost everyone is dearly beloved, like two beautiful words that that often go together, although they also have other implications of right, gathering for really serious <laughs> events. And yeah, it's just a gift with, with language. But um, yeah, so I had heard this or I'd seen in our in our local bookstore, Kingston bookstore novel idea, I'd seen this in the window. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. So I put it on my Christmas list and my husband got it for me. And I began reading some of the poems and he's, he's a poet too. And he loves poetry. And at one point he said, mm. that's enough. I can't, I can't hear anymore right now because they were so powerful and painful. And I thought, well, that's a tribute. Oh, that is. Oh yeah. <laughs> to, to, to what a, a poem can do. And I was, I was quite taken aback actually, because that's not something I've heard before for, from him. So, right. So he said, I can't listen to, to more right now. Um, and here, all those Atwoodian things come through, right? That concern with, with the different kind of lives women have than, than men, absolutely a concern she's never lost. And that has always, always, uh, been there, but also we've got the speaker here mourning her mate and that is new. Um, and of course, although I keep saying speaker, we know that Atwood herself lost her partner of many years, Graham Gibson, in 2019. And the book is dedicated to Graham in absentia. Wow. And um, so Atwood's 81 at this point with no signs of her mind dulling at all, which <laughs> Thankfully. is just wonderful. Yes, it's, it's devoutly to be wished, <laughs> dearly to be wished by uh, everyone. So she's not lost none of her wit, even as I think, right, and this is going way back to, you know, the poetry of the seventies, even, I think she's, she's definitely developed more gentleness, mm. even as she has kept her wry wit and the same, you know, sources of anger and injustice and, and all the other things. So it's, it's just getting richer mm -hmm. and richer, mm -hmm. I think this verse. Um, so with that said, if I could read something from Dearly, Proceed. I would I would dearly love to, to do that. <laughs> uh, and I was thinking two. So one, maybe um, The Invisible Man, and then once again, the title poem, Dearly. Invisible Man. It was a problem in comic books, drawing an invisible man. They'd solve it with a dotted line that no one but us could see. Us with our snub noses pressed to the paper, the invisible glass between us and the place where invisible men can exist. That's who is waiting for me, an invisible man defined by a dotted line. The shape of an absence in your place at the table, sitting across from me, eating toast and eggs as usual, or walking ahead up the drive, a rustling of the fallen leaves, a slight thickening of the air. It's you in the future, we both know that. You'll be here, but not here. A muscle memory, like hanging a hat on a hook that's not there any longer. There seems to be a, a theme that's running through these three collections you've identified, Door Dearly and Morning, Morning in the Burned House, and that is loss. Yeah, loss and losing and anticipating loss. 
and then and what you do with it because loss is about a an absence of that which was there but it's present in the one who's mm. experiencing the loss yeah that's good right? so there's that paradox and i think that really comes through with this idea of the dotted lines and how do you show that invisible man i think that metaphor works really really well here for her for you know what this what the speakers doing so yeah we move around i was thinking about that we move around the space that these people used to occupy right and and how to speak of of that of that which was mm. and what the impression still is on the on the one who can speak of it right and how time works too for the person who is still on this side of of this great divide does does that what have any influence on your own writing? I remember the first time I ever heard Margaret Atwood's name. I was 17 and I had gone to a writing symposium in in Capel in southern Saskatchewan and it was the first time I was around writers of any kind or really thought about writing besides just being a great lover of it and you know scribbling whatever I scribbled. And I wish I knew who it was, but someone was standing up there and he said, I had recommended to this young woman to read a lot. If she wanted to write, she should read a lot. And I told her, you should read Margaret Atwood. And the young woman said to me, and I'm still quoting this man. I wish I knew who he was. The young woman said to me, oh, I don't want you because I'm afraid of being influenced. (sighs) And everybody in the room laughed. And I laughed too, because I thought that was quite funny. Because of course, how do you learn to read except from right except from reading but that but I thought who is Margaret Atwood (gasps) what is this person (laughs) and so I went and found her stuff in a library when I got when I got home and I was absolutely I think she might have been the first living poet I had knowingly read Mm. certainly she wasn't taught in schools no um, and I thought, ah, oh, poetry can be like this and alive in so many ways. So it was just this amazing moment of, of right, discovering this, this person. And then once I was reading Atwood, I was, I was discovering Leonard Cohen and everybody, you know, of the era and, and Canadian and realizing Canada had all kinds of stuff going on. And it wasn't done yet. They weren't. They weren't all dead. So that's kind of a roundabout way of saying I'm. I'm sure that she she has because I've read so much and I've read it and it's dear to my heart. It's dearly. Yes, and I I laughed recently because I've been watching her master class. She has a master class, and she's talking about perspective and and she said something about uh, what about you know rewriting the fairy tales, which is one mm-hmm. of the things that she does. And she says, how about starting a story with It Was Dark Inside the Wolf? And I thought, oh, I did almost that <laughs> in a poem in my in uh, in my first book, you know, and it was about uh, Little Red Riding Hood and, and her grandmother being in the wolf at the same time and, and stuff. So I felt very happy, like, oh, Atwood would approve of, of this piece. So I think, yes, <laughs> she has influenced me. Quite a bit. Yes, Linda. <laughs> that was a very long answer. It's very clear that you're passionate about, about her work and that, you, and that you love her. What would you want other people who have not 
unbelievably not yet picked up an Atwood collection of poetry, what would you want them to know? And what what collection would you most recommend? Let's start with what which collection you would most recommend. I think even though even though I've said she's developed and grown with each collection, I still think that Morning in the Burnt House is my favorite possibly because I think it's it will speak there's work in there that will speak to young people who haven't yet lost a parent like we have or um it, it speaks to everyone I think there's as much looking back as looking forward and and there's some really beautiful we're all in this together but isn't it terrible <laughs> kind of kind of stuff. So yes, that remains. And that's the one that I find myself teaching select poems from. Mm. Um, And sometimes it really upsets the students. There was one young woman, Mm. not a a few years ago, I was first at RMC and I was teaching this poem, uh, The Sad Child, A Sad Child from Morning in the Burnt House. And she came in after having read it, and she said, I hated this poem. And she threw it across the classroom. It was so shocking. And and there was a moment of silence and then some laughter. And I'd never had that kind of moment before. And I visceral, so, it was a visceral reaction. Yeah. And I, you know, I went and I picked up the book and I said, let's talk about why. And we ended up having a wonderful conversation that proved what good poetry it was and how this reaction came to be. So that's that's reinforced my fondness for that collection because of the conversation. It, it goes <laughs> back to what you were saying earlier in the interview, too, that, that in fact, Atwood is someone you can't remain indifferent when you read her work. It, you may not love it, but you won't be indifferent. That's very true. Yes. And, and it is upsetting quite often Mm. and um, in the most fruitful ways, I think. Mm. If you were only going to read one book of Atwood's poetry, which of course will not be your last, (laughs) I'd recommend Morning in the Bird House. All right. One last, let's do one last playful question. If, if Atwood were a martini, what would you be? Oh, okay. Well, um, that's a very good question. Of course, she is so interested in the in the afterworld and the afterlives and the underworld, and it's something I've thought about because she plays with so many myths. But the one that speaks most strongly to what she herself does, I think, is is Persephone, right? So goddess. Um, Demeter's daughter by Zeus and wife of Hades, who was forced to spend half the year in Hades because she had tasted the food of Hades, and that was a handful of pomegranate seeds. So I think <laughs> oh, I if, can see where this is going. I think if Atwood were a a cocktail, she would be a pomegranate martini with some sort of twist, probably lemon, but. <laughs> maybe laced with hemlock or something. I don't know, but I I think a pomegranate martini while the world burned (laughs) would be a very Atwoodian kind of cocktail to enjoy. (laughs) All right. So I think what we've just done is invented a new Atwood martini a la Chantal Lavoie. (laughs) 
<laughs> but not hemlock. But anyway, with at least pomegranate seeds and oh, a and a lemon twist. Um, Chantel, thank you so much for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for asking me, Linda, and it was very fun. You make it so fun, and I love listening to your podcast. So. I'm looking forward to any more that are coming along. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.